netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Thanks for joining us for this FX Podcast. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk about the latest Marvel hit movie, Doctor Strange. And we're going to be speaking, Mike Seymour will be speaking with Steph Soretti, the visual effects supervisor on the film. Steph is also a visual effects supervisor on Guardians of the Galaxy, Cloud Atlas, and also worked with Captain on Captain America, X-Men First Class, Batman Begins, and many other films you can check out on his IMDb page. If you don't follow Steph on social media, I would recommend it very highly. I really enjoy his Instagram feed for the last long while. Check it out. This conversation is really nice. I, I think you'll find it very interesting. Lots about the effects in the film, lots about specific sequences, and uh, a nice discussion about the uh, the DP and choices of camera, and also the um, color correction and how complex that has gotten with all the different formats. Uh, talking about Steve Scott, our friend over at Technicolor, who uh, did the the color on the film, and I really enjoyed that part of the conversation. So rather than me talking longer about the interview, let's jump on in with Mike Seymour and Steph Soretti talking about the film, Doctor Strange. And I have Steph on the line now. How are, how are you? I'm good, doing well, yeah, pretty good. Well, congratulations on the film. Spectacular. Thank You've had you. a great run of films. Um, just a really good run of uh, films, and of course, many of them Marvel, but um, yeah. Yeah, I've been lucky. <laughs> Very and, lucky. And a huge range of both visual effects that you had to address um, from some of your earlier films. Uh, we obviously had a lot of character work to some mm-hmm. things that I imagine in this film were described as, you know, that thing that you've never seen before, something original. Yeah, no, there was lots of that. I mean, there was, um, you know, we tried to be fresh. I mean, um, when I joined the film, uh, it was in actually September 2014. So it was just a couple of months after we finished Guardians. Um and Scott was already on the film. He had already spent a lot of time, you know, uh, working at the script. And it was still in, in its early days. But um, we also had gathered together lots of images and and, and uh, references that he wanted us to look at. But still, it was like, OK, look at these, but then forget all of that. And let's try to find something fresh and new. So obviously, we had a lot of let's do that thing that we've never seen before. Now, how much does this have to work inside a cohesive universe? Because one of the things that I liked about this film is it did have things that felt referential to, say, um, Ant-Man or to Guardians. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. You want to be fresh and original, of course. You want to be engaging for an audience. But is it, you know, the, how deliberate are those nods? Are, are they sort of things that you really want to find ways of linking to or are they just happy accidents? Uh, I think, you know, there's there's a mixture of both. I would say, you know, when you go into um, what we call the Magic Mystery Tour, there is definitely a moment of it that is kind of a reference to uh, that quantum realm that was done in Ant-Man, uh, especially with these kind of floating cubes and things like that. But uh, it was kind of a nod to that, but just, just to uh, kind of tie things together, but in a loose way. And, you know, there, there's things like that. And then there's obviously like some, some references to what we've done on Guardians in terms of the the amount of colors and saturation and the use of color in the film, especially towards the end in the, the dark dimension, uh, which was, you know, which was um, an improvement or I would say, a, you know, a, another step on top of what we did on Guardians with colors. But um, it, it was it wasn't necessarily a deliberate thing there. It was just that that we wanted to go psychedelic. So obviously we had to use tons of colors there. I was really interested in the in the psychedelic reference. If we can just start there, if you look at some of the original yeah. comic book stuff, and and I'm, yeah. I'm not a I'm not a big comic book guy, but um, yeah. some of the yeah. artwork I've seen is is very fluid. Uh, they're kind of blobby shapes. They're very much kind yeah. of uh, swirling. And yes. here you had a sort of geometric, uh, dare I say, it, mathematical kind of feel to it, which, mm-hmm. as I say, works terrifically well. But it it's quite a you know, people say psychedelic, but actually the from a graphic design point of view, it's kind of a different aesthetic, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's uh, there was tons of different influences we looked at. I mean, obviously, we looked at the work from uh, Steve Ditko that he did in the 60s and 70s when he when he started to draw the first uh, comics for Doctor Strange. And there was lots of different shapes, and th- there was lots of very geometrical shapes as well. We had a few key key images from from Steve Ditko that were really geometrical. 
Um, and also using these kind of balls and sticks that we see at the end in the dark dimension uh, and these, these kind of portals opening to other dimensions and things like that. Um, we also looked at, at fractals. Uh, you know, we've, we've used a lot of fractals in the film, like 3D fractals, and, and we, we came up with that principle that we call Mendel Brotting, based on the name of Benoit Mandelbrot, who is a French mathematician who invented fractals. You know, there's a lot of things in, in terms of um, when you go for uh, uh, kaleidoscopic things, it's, it's lots of repetitive patterns as well, which is fractals and which is geometrical, uh, geometrical uh, has a very geometrical aspect to it. So it was kind of a mixture of influences, but in terms of, of the color palette and the psychedelic nature of the, of the colors, uh, we really looked at the comics from the 60s and, and there's that, that uh, poster that Steve Ditko had done uh, which is a black light poster, uh, which is very, very uh, vivid in colors. Uh, if you bright, if you light it with a with a dark light, it becomes very neon colors. Uh, and and uh, Scott had that poster in his office, and he, he constantly referred to it, saying, "This is what I want. I want this kind of colors, the psychedelic aspect of it." So it was kind of a, a, a work on the the color palette, uh, the textures, the shapes. All of that mixed together. What, what we found out is that in some of the art from Steve Ditko, some of the shapes looked very much like fractals. And I don't think that fractals, three fractals at least, were not invented at the time. No, no, was, they absolutely weren't. Yeah. Well, yeah. there's some early stuff with self-referential yeah. patterns, but not, not the, uh, the Mandelbrot not sets. The 3D, yeah, all the Mandelbrot, you know, all these things that we, we kind of used in, uh, as a reference for the film. They did not exist at the time, but he was already drawing shapes, you know, that that were looking exactly like that. So it was kind of uh, shocking to actually see that. Um, I got to talk to the team that did uh, some of the fractal stuff on a film you weren't involved with, which was yes. Suicide Squad. And um, yeah. they used metal brots uh, or metal bulbs. And mm -hmm. uh, a point that they came up with, they thought them to be tremendously flexible and in the sense of producing really organic looking things and yeah. the self-referential uh, fine detail in a sense gives it that organic feel. But they also yeah. found it really cumbersome to change if a director oh, came yeah. along and wanted to modify something. Now, as I yeah. understand it in this, you, you took the fractals at a sort of a mathematical Houdini simulation level to a point, but then didn't you cross over into like effectively polygonalizing them so that you could then get more manual with them to because you just can't direct a fractal yeah. or a metal broad. That, that was the big challenge uh, for all the vendors. I mean, we had four big vendors on the show and they all had to, you know, to some degree uh, use fractals in their shots. And the, the one thing that I said very early on is that, okay, we want these fractals. You know, we've looked at all these, these uh, references on the internet and everything, and but I knew that you couldn't really choreograph them. Mm. Um, so that was the mandate from the start. We said, okay, well, we need to get that, but we, we know for a fact that at some point, uh, Scott or you know someone at the studio is going to say, yeah, but I want that thing to do this, and we have to be able to do it. So it was, um, it was a challenge for everybody. Uh, they kind of came up with pretty uh, advanced technical solutions where they would anim there would be like multiple layers of animation. So there would be... Um, um, a layer of animation which is basic uh, transformation of the shapes, uh, then another layer with, which would be uh, more into starting to break up these shapes and give, give them their own kind of motion and spinning motions and scaling motions just to give a sense of growth, like things are growing and evolving. And these, we would kind of look at these animation as a base animation that we would uh, kind of approve and then they would add another layer on top of that, which is uh, um, transforming all these shapes into these, uh, these more detailed and, and uh, broken down fractal, uh, fractal systems. So it was kind of a multi-layer uh, animation where we could control the overall shape, the progression, the speed of everything that we would see on, on the screen. But then the extra layer that made it look like fractals was the very last layer on top. So those four companies you're referring to, I mean, ILM did the sequence in New York and, of course, uh, Hong yeah. Kong, which yeah. the New York sequence had that very um, kind of, uh, well, kaleidoscope effect coupled with yes. presumably. And then there's the, the Magical Mystery Tour, which we just mentioned, which I think, what was Method? Yep. Um, well, that was Method, Method. Yeah, Method LA and a little bit of Vancouver as well. Yeah. And then Luma was on the Dark Realm that I think crossed into that, right? 
Yeah, it was a dark dimension, uh, which is which does appear for uh, like three shots in the or three or four shots in the in the Magic Mystery Tour. So they kind of had to share a little bit with Method on that that little bit of the sequence. And then it's frame store for sequences like the hallway and the, stuff. Luma did some other stuff. They did the opening sequence in London, which was gorgeous, um, by the way. That was great. Yeah, and they did um, the cathedral sequence. You know when. Yeah. The opens the cathedral and it all goes to uh, fractals as well and kaleidoscopic stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then Framesaw, right? Did the the corridor yeah. when he's running away and that great sequence where Correct. he's running and not getting anywhere. Yes, exactly. They did that. They did all the fight in the Sanctum in New York, within the Sanctum. Um, they did also the astral fight, um, all the astral stuff, you know, when, when he's getting pushed out of his body. So yeah. both in Kathmandu and uh, the, the big astral sequence, the, the, the astral battle in the ER. Uh, now, the if we just talk on the Magic Mystery Trail for a second, because we've started there and yeah. before we move off it, um, I think I'm right in saying there are about seven effective realms or worlds or, or sort of looks yeah. we get. Um, yeah, but I, there were yeah. more at one point, right? Well, it's, yeah, there used to be, I mean, the, the sequence is about two and a half minutes in the film right now. Um, we started with seven minutes. So... Uh, we had about like I would say a, a good fifteen to seventeen different uh, dimensions that we are traveling to, uh, and they all had a very specific name and some very specific uh, uh, qualities and behaviors. Um, but um, that was all um, started very early in the in the, the process of the film because we knew that was kind of a film in the film. Um, so Charlie Wood, the production designer, did a lot of work in terms of concept for all these beats that we had in the in the, the script for the Magic Mystery Tour. And we, we had, I don't know how many concepts we've done, but it was crazy. Like we must have like 200 different concept panels just for that sequence, but super gorgeous detailed concepts. Um, and it was, it was really uh, crazy to look at. I mean, we had one room uh, which was all the walls were covered with printouts of this concept. And it was like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? If it, and it, it was seven minutes. But then as the, you know, as the film progressed, we've actually shot all the elements we needed with Benedict for the seven minutes. Uh, but then we kept on editing it and taking it down and making it more compact and more, you know, it had to be more streamlined. Seven minutes would have been too long. Um, I think it yeah. is clever that it doesn't feel long, given that yes. obviously there's no dialogue and there's no sort of like direct sort of, you know, I mean, it's an important part of the film, but it's not yes. as if it's like a, a sequence where we're as the audience moving the plot forward in a kind of more linear fashion. It's more of a, yeah. an impression. And I, I always found it interesting that I didn't feel like, because you know, I have seen sequences like that. And I think I said this earlier though to somebody else, uh, Star Trek, the first ever film back in like the 70s something, that yes. a sequence just went on and on and on. I was like, all right, already, get there. Yes. <laughs> Even though the With visual that, effects were gorgeous. Yeah, I, I, I love that sequence. I mean, the, all that Star Trek, the motion picture, to me, they are like beautiful. Even today, you look at them and you, you just can't stop looking at all the details. But yeah, it does last for a bit. It took the kind of wind out of the plot. But you didn't yeah. do that. You, you kept it going. Now, no. I was gonna, in that sequence, uh, the last one, I think it is, there was a the sort of shape-shifting sequence, I think it was called. He's kind of coming back through the tunnel. But you actually, you wound back a lot of the shape-shifting, didn't you? You were going to do a lot we more. Did. Yeah, well, there was, you know, there was tons of things happening to him and we felt like it was not necessary and it, it was, it, it became a bit of a noise at some point. So, you, you know, you, it, with all these things, you have to balance the effects and the story and the pace and, and, you know, everything else. So it's, and that's, that's been our concern for the entire film because we, overall, we, we knew that we we're going to go pretty crazy on some of the, the, the effects uh, but still, it's a movie about Doctor Strange. Uh, it's not about the visual effects of Doctor Strange or something like that. So it, it, we needed to be able to balance things together in, in, a, in a nice way. And, and I think the Magic Mystery Tour is a good example of, okay, we started very ambitious, very crazy, but actually that wasn't the best thing to do for the film. At that point in the story, it's just it's an introduction. It's not the whole thing. So we, we, we really had to uh, try and get the best of what we had and, and, and make it an, an interesting sequence where people could just go through that and experience magic for the first time really in the film. That's the first real, I mean, except for the, for the opening sequence, 
it takes a while to get to the Magic Mystery Tour because there's lots of stuff happening in New York before that. And um, we just didn't want to spend too much time on that as well because we, we had so much to tell after that. Yeah. So it was about finding the right balance. I have to say, though, just while we're finishing that up, it, is, it has one of my favorite little shot sequences out of the whole film. It, there's a lot, but one that I, I just loved, you... it's him falling through his own yeah. eyeball. Um, yes, yeah. that's and, my favorite too. Yeah, and as I understand yeah. it, you use the new um, eye approach stuff that Disney Zurich had worked out. Um, I think Pascal uh, in Zurich did that, but you, you got that through ILM, I think, the, or they did the Medusa scans as well. But anyway. Uh, well, yeah, we Medusa scan on all the, on all our actors. Uh, so we used all that new technology from Disney Research. Uh, we also looked at the papers for the for the eyes, you know, the way the eyes are reacting and the way the, the refraction is happening in the eyes, all that kind of super high detail stuff we've done. We've done some very high detail pictures of uh, Benedict's eyes and he's yeah. got very special eyes, um, very specific to him. Um, so we, we've done all that stuff. I mean, we haven't we haven't been using their technology all the way down to the recreation of the models and everything. Uh, but we, we've used some, some of it to uh, try and be as, as you know, close to uh, Benedict as possible. I mean, in this shot, the second time we go to his face, it's a fully digital face. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, uh, and you're going really close because you're going from, you know, a medium shot to all the way down to the eye. And he's, the face is animated and everything. It's all digital. And, um, and it looks pretty good. And I think Plam and Craven did the body Method scanning, did. right? On the they did that, and they, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it is remarkable that you can transition so effortlessly because I know you you actually rigged up the actor to be able to be you know yeah. filmed yeah. for a lot of that stuff. But you're moving pretty seamlessly, it seems, yeah. between actor and digital double. Yeah, we do that all the time. We do that all the time in the Magic Mystery Tour, and we do that all the time in the 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 um, the astral battle as well uh you know we found out that we just needed to be able to mix uh, all the different techniques you know shooting someone in front of a green screen doing uh replacing maybe just the body but keeping the face in some places just going fully digital in other moments we just try and keep and mess it up all the time so that nobody can really find out what we've done uh so it kind of keeps the illusion up in the air for a while um, and that's that's how we play it for all these digital things. And it seemed like you were, I've seen some B-roll on set and the, there's a bunch of magic, um, Eldridge magic, he's got the <laughs> shield and the and yes. uh, his, the rones we're, are coming up and he, the actors actually had sort of coloured light things. Like when they're jumping through the yeah. portals, there are colour, they're actually like chaser lights, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, we had, uh, we, uh, you know, the way the way Scott described the film to us at the very beginning, it was a, a, a very dark film with the, mag, the brightness of the magic coming into it. So we had to be able to uh, have a good amount of interactive light um, coming from all the magic, and it's it's pretty strong light sources. So uh, so we looked at LED uh, uh, strings for the the, the whips. We looked at um, LED um, strings for the shields as well. They were sometimes carrying. Um, like perspex shields uh, in front of their hands. Um, and also we looked at for when they go through the portals, we had that ring of, the way we call the ring of fire on the on the set uh, that we were using for them to go through. Um, and that gave us a good foundation for the for the light interaction on them. So you're obviously a really experienced supervisor. And the, the, the I guess the thing that would bother me, not as a very experienced supervisor, is mm -hmm. I would commit to that and I'd have all this flashing light going on and then someone would say, oh, yeah, it lights up, you know, three or four seconds later and we're like, uh-oh, all our plates have got, you know, flashing yellow lights in them. I mean, you're committing yeah. to a certain extent once you introduce that contact lighting. Were you yeah. comfortable that things weren't going to change or were you just figured you could fix it if they did? So, well, when you work for Marvel, everything can change anytime. <laughs> So uh, you have to uh, find the right balance between overcommitting and not overcommitting, but still getting a little bit of something. So it was all about uh, finding the right amount of light so that we could get something to play with, but not overpowering it so that once we had it, we were stuck with it. So it's it's about trying finding that right balance. And I think you know we 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 had a, a great DP uh, Ben Davis. Uh, it was a, really a, a pleasure to work with when you're a supervisor because he's so aware of everything we're doing and, and also so clever about his lighting. 
He, um, he, um, he was the DRP on Guardians as well, wasn't he? He was on Guardians as well. He was on uh, Avengers uh, Age of Ultron. So, he's, you know, he's, he's been around with Marvel for a while and he's done other very big films. Uh, and, we've, yeah, I've worked with him quite a few times. So um, we get along very well and he, he totally gets it. And, uh, and so it was about finding that right balance. And sometimes we messed it up. You know, sometimes we, we just kind of had to take take out the light or put it back in earlier or change the timing or stuff like that. But at least we had a good foundation to work with. While we're on, Ben, um, how early did it come up that you were going to shoot some stuff at IMAX res? I, I was lucky enough to see it and I got to see stuff in, you know, the different aspect ratios. Uh, mm-hmm. That's a pretty remarkable step up. Um, I think you were shooting with the Alexa 65, but also yeah. the Panavision 65, right? Uh, we were shooting, we shot everything with the 65, the Alexa 65, not right. the Panavision. It okay. was, uh, the entire film was shot with the Alexa 65. Uh, so at 6K. Yeah. Um, and uh, and that was the, the old idea. I mean, that came up, that came up very early. Um, like, um, I think the week uh, Ben joined, we already knew that we wanted to do. Uh, so what was your attitude to that? Was it? Because it's just more work for you, right? <laughs> well, it's not really because we're not we're not finishing at the full rise. Um, we're just finishing back down to a normal rise. But we are we we start at six k. Um, we do a, a bit of work uh, at three k and then take it down to uh, to two k. Well, um, now I understood from ILM and maybe I got this wrong. They actually mm-hmm. delivered a couple of shots with a different kind of framing to accommodate one nine versus uh, yes, two three five. That we do. I mean, we finish our films with Protect 177 anyway. Right. So, so um, we had to do the work in 177 format, uh, but there was, um, you know, sections of the film that we knew uh, would be using the full IMAX ratio and the projection window, the 1.9. Um, so for these sequences, we kind of really looked more closely to whatever work we were doing these uh, and the top of bottom of frame and kind of play with it a little bit more. Um, we, we picked about 60, 60 minutes of the film to be um, in that format and we, uh, we, we paid a lot of attention to these moments. But even if you were delivering, knowing that it's an IMAX shot in an IMAX sequence, you weren't finishing that at like 4K or you were? No, no, no we were not because um, we honestly, we didn't have time. Um, okay. It was, it was uh, um, I mean, we had five and a half months to do the film in post. Wow. So that was pretty short. <laughs> uh, so we didn't have time to do that. And and actually the DMR process is very is pretty good. What they're doing at IMAX, you know, they they kind of appraise and and sharpen. And especially with the extra resolution that we had from the original 6K, um, right. the images by themselves are so much sharper than than what you you were getting with the 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 old uh, Alexa uh, cameras. Uh, that it's you get so much more resolution and the lenses are beautiful. I mean, mm. you, you get all um, uh, big format lenses and uh, the detail that you get on the costumes and on the faces and it's just beautiful, beautiful. And the depth of field is amazing. And while we're on Ben's work, there was also yeah. some pretty cool high speed stuff. I think um, yeah. Love High Speed did some rigs on the car for the car crash and I think there was some right. Phantom 4K stuff in there, some flex. Yeah, yeah, it's all Phantom 4K. Uh, we went up to a thousand frames per second uh, on some of these shots, especially in the car crash, um, and uh, it needed a lot of light. Uh, we also did a bit of that in the in the streets of Hong Kong. We have a few shots where we go at a uh, thousand frames per second, which was a bit of a challenge because obviously when you light a car in front of a green screen, you can you can put a lot of light. Um, but when you're in a in a, in a street uh, at night, it's a little bit more difficult. So we we had to kind of play around with shooting some foreground elements at 1,000 frames per second, but shooting background at uh, 96 on a normal Alexa uh, camera. So we kind of mixed uh, the different layers with different speeds. Um, that was the only way to achieve it. Who who did your final grade? Because I liked the look of the film. Is that? Uh, it's uh, Technicolor. Uh, Steve Scott at Technicolor was the, the main colorist. Uh, Steve, after, Steve is such a great guy. Yeah, he's amazing. And uh, we, we had such a good collaboration on that one because, uh, um, you know, Ben was there for a big chunk of time, which was really, really, really good. And oh, that's uh, good. I, had, I had some time to go there as well. You know, there's, uh, the, the thing is uh, at Marvel, the, the, supervisor, the supervisors are very... Um, 
you know, involve into the grading uh, and the QC of all the different versions because we do so many different versions. We do, uh, you know, uh, 2D, 3D, uh, EDR. We do IMAX and, you know, 3D, uh, different laser projection and all that stuff. So we, we all look at that and we we are invited to QC all these things. So it's it's a very good process. In the, you know, you, you really get to deliver the film to the very end. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of Steve's work and, uh, well, I, I've known him since he was a flame operator, but my point yeah. is he's really good at doing stuff. But that being said, if you're going for these different um, uh, looks, the the actual, you know, I mean, the, the nature of the shot does change quite considerably on the grade. I mean, especially the, you've got not only now the issue of um, how much the dynamic range is, but also the, the color space. Uh, were yes. there any shots that you kind of suddenly went, hang on, this was working great, but if you push it like that in this color space, we're going to need to tweak something? Yes, there were a few things where, uh, I mean, especially when you go to EDR, it's a, it's such a new a new world um, that you start seeing things that you were not seeing really before, uh, which is fine. I mean, we, we've always done that. You know, we've always looked at images in log space just to check that everything is consistent and there's no hidden uh, problems in the, the high values or low values. But um, but, uh, but there's kind of a difference in that. I mean, raising up the black so you can tell whether the blacks match is one thing, but the, the yeah. extended dynamic range stuff that you're referring to, the ERD, that's yeah. really getting us colors we haven't really seen before yeah. or rather yeah. Yeah. not easily seen. And the, I mean, the, the, you go into the room the first time and they say the projector is on and actually it's black. Yeah. So there's so much contrast that it's it's crazy. And then you start looking at sequences without, you know, we, without with the original grade, and the lights are too bright, and they're kind of you, you kind of you almost have to carry, uh, you know, uh, sunglasses to look at them. And then you go into the blacks, and you see all these details that you didn't see before, but they are really deep, you know. Hmm. So uh, sometimes it just takes away from what's happening in the shots. Uh, that we had a few shots where, you know, tons of shots we have to take down the highlights so, so that they don't blow up too much and then lots of shots where we had very dark you know in the streets of Kathmandu we have very dark places where we it's so dark that actually your your eyes are going there instead of going to the action right and then you have to kind of lift it again and bring back some details so that the eyes don't get away from the action and don't start to try and find out what's in that black spot and you know so it's all about rebalancing everything it's it's quite an interesting exercise so let's say you turned up hypothetically mm-hmm. speaking, with your family and Steve Scott had the system set up and he yeah. said, hey, I'm happy to play the film for your friends or your family. Which version do you want him to project in a quality environment? Like what's your, I mean, I'm not saying that it's better or not, but just you personally, if you want to yeah. watch this film, which grade do you want to see it in? Um, my favorite version is the 3D IMAX laser. Okay. Uh, definitely. Um, but I would say do this, but don't go too close to the screen. Right. That's what I, I just say, do, go for the, for the IMAX, but sit back a little bit because it's, otherwise it's overwhelming. Um, but it depends what you're looking for the film. You know, some, some people will like to see the full frame of, you know, the full frame of the film and, uh, and, uh, you know, be able to see everything. Some people will want the experience to be completely immersive and be fine with being like 10 meters away from the screen on an IMAX thing. It depends what you want to, you know, what you want to take out of the film. I think the film is, it can be seen in, in different ways, you know. But then, isn't there uh, a sort of an issue for you about the kind of sweet spot on an IMAX? Like when you've got, because I've been to, you know, one of the largest IMAXs in the world, it happens to be in Sydney. Yeah. And, yeah. and you can really tell when the DOP has had a chance to frame for IMAX versus not, mm-hmm. because the sort of sweet spots are a third versus halfway up the screen kind of thing. Yeah, it is around there, around there yeah. It's, it's uh, you know, because we open up in one nine and, you know, we, can, we kind of play the rest in two four. And, but you don't, quite, you don't quite really notice it. It's pretty smooth the way it's done. I mean, mm. uh, Evan, Evan Jacobs, our uh, 3D supervisor, has come up with that idea on Guardians and then we've, we've been doing it uh, ever since. But um, it's, uh, I think it's, um, I think it holds up pretty well and you, you kind of, I mean, I, I, I think it works. I mean, and the, the, there's no huge problems in terms of framing and the way we look at the film. I don't, I, I've never noticed anything that made me feel like, oh, right, that wasn't really good for that. Um, right. Somehow it just works. It's kind of crazy, but somehow it just works. 
So if I can switch gears now and go back just to straight yeah. visual effects. Um, yeah. The sequence in New York has rightly mm-hmm. gathered a huge amount of attention. I think I think London is also really great at the beginning and I, I love the yeah. kind of intricate and the bricks work. But yeah. it, it is just gobsmacking the amount of ge- geometry that you're looking at uh, in those uh, sequences. Were you, was it ever a, a sort of a concern that at some point we're just going to, you know, hit some limits? I mean, I know that ILM has a pretty decent pipe, but yeah. Yeah. That's, you are you're well, really probably not not sort of, there's a lot of detail on that 3D. There's a lot of detail. Uh, I think Luma in London kind of suffered a little, a little bit. Uh, that was that was really tough because we, we pushed the, the Mandelbrot uh, of the of the street to a very high level and level of detail as well. I mean, we have shots very close to the buildings and very wide shots. And so they had to go really, you know, strong on their details. I mean, and, and ILM, you know, they're, they're just a gigantic bear moth, so they can deal with these things. Um, and we didn't have as much mental broughting in the ILM sequence, but still, yeah. I mean, the amount of buildings that they've built for us, um, and uh, it's just huge, but they've handled it very well. I mean, uh, they've never told us, oh, we can't do that because we can't render it. That was never even discussed, to be honest. Um, it's- and they've been so good with you know bringing some ideas all of them all the vendors like just trying to push the envelope as much as we could just trying to be as fresh as possible and coming up with with ideas that were like wow that's cool let's put it in you know and everybody on the film uh, you know from from the the marvel uh, execs to the director to uh, supervisors like me and everybody if all the artists involved in the film they were all super excited about it and we got so many good ideas from everybody it was it was really cool so richard was at ilm like yeah. he was there richard bluff was their supervisor that working yeah. alongside you he tells a funny story of loading up a sequence himself in the new york and thinking yeah. this is like really pretty dense i wonder if i can turn some stuff off to reduce the geo and noticed that there was a post-it note piece of geo and as it turned out, that was replicated around computers in a cubicle, which itself was replicated many times in many floors of many buildings. And, and, it's, and he just by yeah, turning off the post-it note, he saved vast amounts of geometry that were post-it <laughs> notes throughout the entire... I mean, at some point, you're not... You don't... It's like it's it's not that it's indulgent because obviously we need the detail, um, but it's actually really hard to pick... And sort of manage that, isn't it? Because I mean, you know, you want that for some shots, but for others, you're just weighing down the the, the pipeline with ridiculous amounts of, of stuff that won't be actually seen. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that, I don't know, you know, I mean, they, they just manage it very well because we, we they've never really told us, oh, it's going to take too long to render. Never, ever. We never had that problem. I mean, they, they really manage their pipeline very well, but I'm, I'm sure they have tons of stories like that. I mean, when I was working at Buffet, I had tons of stories like that where we are like, we found out some stuff hidden in a, in a scene. We didn't know why we couldn't render it. And there was like stuff all crumpled in the center of the world that had like millions of polygons in it. And <laughs> You know, you always kind of, when you start digging in these scenes and people are just working like crazy to get them done, there's always some something somewhere that's really like, oh my God, how did that happen? And, uh, and you figure it out. But it's, uh, I can't imagine with the amount of, of uh, assets that they have in their libraries, um, being, you know, going through that and cleaning it and rendering it and, and managing it is just staggering. So, so it's really a testament to how good that stuff is that it shocked me to find it was only 150 shots. Because afterwards yeah. in the car park, I'm thinking, wow, that was like, the, you know, huge, huge, huge sequence. Now, of course, 150 doesn't do anyone justice because, you know, they're very complicated 150. But they nonetheless, are. it was even more than Hong Kong, which is, oh, sorry, less than Hong Kong. Hong Kong was only 200. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, actually, the film is not too many. I mean, it's uh, 1,450 shots, which is about 900 shots uh, less than Guardians when you, no. look about, you know, look at it. But they were just... Every shot was a puzzle. Every single shot was was like, how do we do this? You know, and from not just from a post point of view, but even from a uh, you know previews. Obviously, that we previews the entire film uh, before we shot it, and the as third, we were shooting it, third floor, and, I think. Uh, third floor did a great yeah. job, and Farazamid, our supervisor, is super clever and and uh, came up with tons of great ideas. So uh, you know, it's it's been really good uh, on that and. Um, we're, um, you know, they, 
every single shot was a challenge. I mean, we were, I was working with Faraz and, and Scott and, and Wyatt, the editor, and the editor came into the, into, uh, to work on the film before we started to shoot to edit the previous, because that was, it was that level of detail that we needed in the previous to be able to shoot it, that we really needed the proper editor of the film to, to work it all out. Um, so, you know, there was that, and then I was jumping in and starting to break down everything and, and work with the vendors to figure out how we could shoot elements for all that stuff. You know, how do we shoot uh, Mordo and Strange running on, on these buildings? And then we had to work with stunts and special effects and and costumes to uh, to figure all these things together uh, and then shoot it and, and then post it. But uh, everything was... Every single shot was a bit of a puzzle and a bit of a, of a R&D um, uh, exercise. So um, it, it wasn't a huge amount of shots, but it was a huge amount of thinking and brain damage. Yeah. <laughs> Talking about wardrobe, you even, of course, had the uh, the cape, which is a character in its own right. So, the cloak. Yeah, the most adorable cloak in history. Yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, it... It's a, it's a funny story because, you know, it started just as the cloak of levitation. And as we were, uh, you know, they were writing more and more uh, uh, in the script, they started to make it a character. And we, we had that discussion about, you know, obviously the, there's the, the connection with the magic carpet in uh, Aladdin. But uh, we, we just wanted to be able to tell a story that he meets the cloak and it's like a horse, you know, uh, like, a, like a, a horse in the fields. And he's never been uh, with a horseman or a horse rider. And then they start to work together and then the, the horse is a bit crazy and the, the guy doesn't know how to work with it, which is what's happening at the beginning. The, the cloak is kind of doing its own thing and telling him to do stuff in, the, in the, um, the chamber of relics, in the sanctum, and he doesn't quite understand what, what it's trying to tell him. And then they start to work together and then he, he wears the cloak and he can fly and, uh, and towards the end they really work together uh, very well and there's, there's a little bit of... There's definitely a connection between the two of them when he, when the cloak wipes his tears on his face and everything. So we would really try to tell the arc of that character throughout the film. And uh, Framestore did the animation for all these moments. Not all the cloaks were done by Framestore, but most of the the big animation work on the cloak is done by Framestore. And we worked with them on uh, on Guardians to do Rocket, um, and we thought that was a good uh, a good match for the cloak as well. I mean, Rocket obviously is a terrific character, but for a character animator, the cloak is kind mm -hmm. of a gift, isn't it? Because it's like not often that you get to be so expressive in a sort of classic Disney way almost, you know, yes. an effects film. Yeah. yeah, it is, but it's actually very tough because there's not much you can play with, really. No, I mean, there's, no. No, there's no arms, there's no nothing. So, I mean, the eyes are these glass, these glass that are on the chest, you know, that's we try to use that almost as the eyes. And then... Uh, you know, obviously the, the hands are the, the, the tip of the cloak and everything, but there was, we had to figure out what was the best way to do it. And it was, again, you know, on for everything on this film, it was, uh, you know, it all came from ideas that uh, Scott and the writers had and, and that the guys at Marvel had, but then we just took it on board and everybody kind of came with ideas. You know, the stunt guys came up with some stunt vis for, uh, for that sequence with the cloak, with him kind of running and running on, on, on his uh, same position and sliding and the cloak pulling him the other way. And all these gas, gags kind of came from previs and then stuntvis and then, you know, all of us working together to figure out how to tell the story the best way. But um, it was uh, it was an interesting process, definitely. And the animators made it even better than what we had in mind. Yeah, so, I have to uh, say, I was, I was, you know, not being nasty, but I was like completely unsure how on earth Rocket would ever come off. I was like, you know... I know Rock you've been... Recane in a tree. I was like, these guys are yeah. just burying themselves. There's no way you can yeah. get out of this one. Um, <laughs> so, so they did deliver because obviously it's incredibly yeah. well done, and and Groot is just, just amazing. But um, how do you go around selecting the companies when you come on this film? Is it like, look, those guys got great character animation from Rocket. Let's give them the cloak, or is it much more yeah. of a just on the bidding and the complexity of people's schedules? It's, it's like a casting right you know so uh, I mean there's obviously the the story of the, the history of the companies you've been working with or the company you want to, you want to work with because of work they've done before um, there's also the supervisor at the company that makes a huge difference believe it or not but it does um, and uh, but you know like if you look at it you know we started the film and then we had uh, okay so we had we had New York and Hong Kong and 
uh, Richard Bluff had already worked with Susan Pickett, my producer, um, on uh, on the Avengers, and he he's worked on the, all the environment in New York for the the end of the Avengers, and and she said, well, this is the guy we want to have because uh, you know we've got to do New York as a CG asset, and he knows how to do it, uh, even <laughs> though it's going to be all changing and shifting and transforming and everything. Uh, it, it made sense for them to do it. And they also had Hong Kong and there were big sequences with huge amount of effects. So it island made total sense. And then you look at um, the Magic Mystery Tour and uh, we thought, okay, Method, they have really good creative people there. Uh, I happen to know one of them very well because um, uh, he used to work at Booth with me for years. Uh, also, I've worked at Method uh, for a few years. So I know these guys very well. Uh, and I know they're very creative, so uh, we thought, okay, let's do it with them. Um, and then, you know, you look at the uh, frame store, uh, they had lots of double work to do, uh, and uh, the, the cloak animation and some effects work, uh, and it made sense because they, they're very good at doubles, they're very good at animation, astral projection was, was uh, a good match for them. And um, and the cloak was a very good match for them. So you know we kind of look at things. We obviously there's there's the bidding process that goes into uh, into the the whole thing. But um, uh, that's that's how we play it. You know and and Luma obviously very creative company um, that has been doing a lot of work with Marvel. We really like these guys. And uh, we thought London was a good fit for them. The cathedral was a good fit for them. Also they're very good at doing. You know they kind of kind of led the way in terms of the mandel uh in some ways, um, even though kind of ILM, it was kind of a, uh, of a, you know, of a collaboration between everybody, but um, Luma really did the first few shots for the mandel Um So, and the, the Dark Dimension, we felt like they had done a good job for us on Guardians with uh, Thanos' Dark World. So um, we thought that was a, an extension of that. And uh, it was, you know, it's, it's just a casting. It is a casting. Yeah, you have a couple of like real sort of domain area experts. I mean, it's yeah. hard to imagine anyone but Lola managing to pull off the stuff that they do with uh, sort of the digital face work. And of course, they came back yeah. here for the uh, the Zealots uh, eyes and stuff. Hey, what was the? I know that the the, the Zealots um, like the there's a GSI kind of reference to the going around their eyes. But what was the yeah. like logic behind that? Like, why have they got this stuff on their eyes? Or was it just because it's cool and they're kind of evil. Uh, it, it was the the idea that when they get um, they get to the cathedral, they don't have their eyes, uh, you know, the kind of uh, broken eyes that they yeah. have throughout the film. Uh, when they get um, into the cathedral, they they do that uh, ritual and they kind of connect with Dormammu and the dark dimension. And there's like that shot on Caecilius where you see when he gets his eyes kind of created, yeah. uh, you see some some kind of inserts of Dormammu into that. And the idea was that these colors, these kind of um, um, purple colors are a hint to what they're going to see towards the end of the film when they get to the dark dimension. So that was that was an idea of bringing the textures of the dark dimension into their eyes. So changing gears again, and we've touched on it a little, <laughs> but the, if you had to kind of come up with an original fight sequence, it's almost impossible these days. And yet you guys managed to do it with that end sequence in Hong Kong. Um, yeah. Having people moving forward while moving backwards not only was it yeah. spectacular on screen, but it must have been a mother of a problem to film on set. It was. <laughs> it definitely was. Uh, I mean, the, the, just to go back to the big picture, the, the, that's one of the things that, that uh, uh, Scott really told us at the very beginning. He said, I don't want to finish a film where we've destroyed half of the world again. I just want to take it, take, you know, make a twist on the blockbusters and just go backwards. Just we we're gonna finish the film with where nothing happened, and uh, instead of you know doing another film where we take a building and put it smash it down on the ground and destroy everybody and kill two hundred thousand million people, we're just gonna go backwards, and and uh, I thought that was genius. Yeah, um, yeah. So you I still mean, had just, to do complicated discussion pipelines, <laughs> just yes, just play I mean, in reverse. Yes, it's it's a. Uh, so it was a challenge because, you know, obviously we previewed everything. Um, and, you know, the more we're going into the previews, the more we're looking at the shots and we're like, oh, my God, but we're going to we're going to have to shoot all of these shots with motion control. And and, uh, you know, because we have to shoot all these different passes and it's going to be a nightmare. And so we, we you know, we looked into it. Um, we broke it down piece by piece, uh, kind of 
looked at different categories of shots. We work with ILM very closely on to uh, trying to find some ways of shooting stuff without motion control, uh, which we did not really succeed, to be honest. I mean, there's there's so many variables and it's, it's it's very difficult. So we looked at also we were we knew we were shooting with the 65, which was giving us a lot of extra room on the sensor to kind of do some 2D post 2D work. So shooting locked off and then adding extra motion into the right. into the, the frame. Uh, because of that extra resolution, we would start 6K and then punch into the frame and kind of uh, play around with that. Uh, so we, we, we categorized the shots and then we started to go through bit by bit with the, the, the production designer in terms of, you know, and the, the first AD and everybody involved, special effects. How are we going to shoot that? Uh, we're going to do these shots with motion control, which we use some motion control in that sequence uh, because we had to. There was no way around it. And uh, we ended up shooting uh, over 23 nights. Wow. Um, so that was a long shoot uh, because there was no way around. We could only do five or six setups a night, uh, really. Um, so that was a really painful iterative process and very difficult because we were destroying the, the, the street as we went along. Uh, so we had to choreograph everybody to move in places where they wouldn't hit anything. And also we had to be careful that the actors would be fighting in the street and then, but then the people around would be going around the actors, but they have to go around the actors thinking that they are going backwards. Uh, so they're not, you know, in terms of synchronizing everything. And also also we, we did shoot the going backwards uh, shots at a different frame rate uh, in places. So we had to take into account the fact that the other guys would be moving at after speed, the background guys would be moving at after speed and, the, and the, our foreground guys, the, the actors, would be going forward at normal speed. So it was all a bit of a gigantic uh, puzzle. Um, and we were kind of building or destroying the street as we went along because we shot it in, in order of destruction. We destroyed the, the, the street as we went along. And then we kind of edited back in into backwards. Um, so it, it was really um, a gigantic puzzle, uh, to be honest. And, and everybody just rose to the occasion and said, we have to do it. You know, it was, we tried to reduce it. We tried to shoot it in 15 days. It was just not possible, just not possible. Uh, too complex. Yeah. I mean, it, it is almost, uh, unless you've tried doing it, it's almost hard to judge. Just a simple question of like, so I go here, has to be thought out. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, you were, no, were over there, now you're over here, and then you have to get yeah. back to there, and by the way, don't yeah. hit that thing that's coming through twice as fast, yeah. Exactly. It was um, it was really difficult because, the you know, everybody was kind of questioning everything all the time because, oh, but what, what about this and what about that? And even though we had previous day everything very, very precisely and everybody was following the previous, it was still difficult. Well, yeah, because it, at the end of the day, even though you've previous it, you still have to film it with normal yeah. time. So yes. it's all very well having previews of me running backwards and jumping over a, an object, but I still have to f jump over the object and then run forward in real life to, to get that sequence. <laughs> Exactly. Now, in, in physics, obviously, um, you know, you drop anything and how long it takes to move through frame tells me how big it is, right? That's because obviously yeah. a heavy thing doesn't move any differently than a, than a lighter thing in its fall. So mm -hmm. if it's going to take four or five frames to drop through frame, I know how far away it is from the ground and I can tell a lot of stuff. Once you start playing with slow-mo, that starts playing yes. with my perception of weight. But now Ooh. if I run it in reverse you're, yeah. and in slow-mo, uh, it must have been really hard to get because one of the things we always talk about in visual effects, oh, it's got to have weight and feel like it's grounded and that it's, you know, not yeah. floating. But you had like about everything I can think of working against you for selling a shot. Was that a problem? It was and wasn't in the same way. I mean, the, the, the thing that we, we kind of played with was just playing things backwards kind of worked um, most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time. The, the thing that was really fun was having nothing moving and then suddenly things bouncing on the ground, like you have, oh, what's happening? And then all these things kind of bouncing, bouncing and reforming and starting to fly up in the air and then go back into a building and forming that building. And then the building kind of forms itself in five frames because that's how physics works. You know, there's actually, we have, we're looking at backwards acceleration. Yep. So it's actually, we're looking at something that goes not very fast because it's bouncing, then goes 
very fast because it, it just falls on the ground very fast. But then as it goes up, it kind of decelerates and then finally reforms in a few frames. So, and that was the, that, that effect that was kind of actually interesting for us. We really wanted to have that pop moment. We call it the pop moment. When, when a building reforms itself, it's mayhem. And then suddenly in a few frames, it just cleans, you know, becomes really clean and mm. reforms. And that's the, that's the aesthetics that uh, we wanted to have for the entire scene. Sometimes it was working better than other times and we had to tweak the speed. Like sometimes we had to actually play around with the, the frame rate of some of the simulations to make it a little bit more interesting. Um, and the funny thing is that uh, I was at a panel the other day with uh, Michael Giacchino who wrote the music. And uh, he, he thought the music exactly the same way because they kind of recorded it going forward and then played it backwards and then re-recorded it forward, but with the backward partitions. And then all the sounds, all the attacks on the sounds are playing exactly the same way as our simulations are playing. They're all playing backwards in a natural way. So the, it's, it's a deceleration instead of an acceleration. And, uh, and the music plays the same way. And I thought that was a, a nice parallel between our works because uh, it's exactly what's happening, you know. So uh, it's all these things together kind of create an illusion that I think works very well in the scene. That's interesting. It's a really nice nod from the audio guys, isn't it? Yeah. It's, uh, it's, uh, and then, you know, they've played all the sounds backwards and they, they all try to get that, you know, that kind of sounds where it's in a, you know, it reforms yeah. and I'm doing it on Skype, so it might not play sure. very well, but <laughs> um, it, it was, uh, it, Everything was thought on many levels, you know, sound and image and simulation and everything kind of working together to create that sense. It's, it's a very um, disturbing sequence in some ways because you don't know where the, the whole idea is that you don't know where the threat is coming from. Yes. They're, they're not fighting between each other. They're also fighting the environment. Well, because when something blows up, we kind of know what's going to happen, right? Stuff's going to go flying. Yeah. It's going to bounce. It was, for me, yeah. fun watching, what am I looking at? Oh, that's a building. <laughs> Yes. I didn't. I didn't know at first that was a building, but what's yeah. that bamboo? Okay, now I know what that is. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So that was the deal. I mean, that's that's why that sequence has a little bit of a unsettling feeling to it because you really don't know what's going to happen, uh, and it's more surprising. I mean, you're right when you see a you know building like a shop that's going to explode. Well, it's going to explode, and glass is going to fly or fly around. But here you see the glass flying around before you know what it is. So yeah. it's it. It's uh, it it makes it keeps people on their toes all the time. So at the risk of offending you, and I don't mean to, the only thing that I kind of struggled with, and it wasn't in mm -hmm. the execution, it was just in the, I guess, the framework of the visual language you had to work in. When yeah. the astral uh, stuff happened with the ancient one and they went out on the balcony, you had these shots yes. looking out and time froze. They looked magnificent. Yeah. But for me, I just, I felt like the two actors on screen, their images mm -hmm. were bouncing up and down and just wobbling around because they were yeah. not standing. And for yeah. me, I was like, I really struggled with that. I, I don't think it was badly rendered or anything. I just was mm -hmm. like, man, that's, that was asking you to come up with something that was really deep and sort of very, you know, kind of moving point in the film. But by the same token, you've got people just wobbling in the, in the screen. Yes. Yeah. Was I the only one that brought that up, or <laughs> <laughs> no? I mean, that was a, that was a, that's a fair question. I mean, we when we sh we shot it, we they they were on two little platforms, kind of bouncing up and down, uh, which we tried to um, you know keep in checks. Uh, we had some moments where it was a little bit too strong, and some other moments where it was fine. Um, I think it was just to keep the floatiness of the sequence. You know, there's a, there's a nice floaty feel about the sequence, the snow that's hanging there and uh, the helicopter that's there and, you know, with its blade kind of going super slow-mo. And um, I think that was, you know, that was, that was an, an idea that uh, we had about, you know, trying to make them not too static, you know, all the time. Otherwise, they, they could have just been standing there on the, on the ground and there, there would have been no difference. Um, uh, you know, I can understand that it's unsettling. I mean, there's, there's definitely a few shots where I would have toned it down a little bit, but we, you know, we couldn't do it, do it in post actually because for some specific reasons. Um, but um, you know, it's it's uh, either you buy it or you don't, I guess. Yeah. So of these incredible sequences we have spoken about, the New York, the Hong Kong, the Magical mm -hmm. Mystery Tour, and of course just the sort of general things like the car crash, which are. I yes. found really good and, and visceral. Was there any particular sequence there that 
you know, before it was done, you kind of red flagged as this is the one that's going to, you know, make me go grey? And was there anything that sort of... <laughs> they all made me go grey. <laughs> um, I would say, I mean, the astral fight was a really difficult one. I mean, the astral fight, all the astral stuff was actually more difficult than it looks. Um, the biggest reason why it was, so, we, it took us a while to figure out what the astral form should look like. And I'm going to tell you why. It's just that we started with, you know, when you start on a project like that, you've got big ambitions all the time. Um, and you say, oh, we're going to do the coolest astral form that ever existed. So you start going into, you know, you, start, you talk to the vendors and, and you kind of try and, oh, what if we do this and that? And, you know, everybody has an idea and we all try everything. And then you end up with something that looks like an effect. And, and it's fine, but you look at the script and you think, oh, we've got that five minutes long sequence where they talk on the balcony. And the last thing we want in that very emotional moment is to have the effects take away from the actors and from the story. Um, so you keep going and you keep going and you keep going and then you, f you, you try and find some tricks and things and then you really keep going down and down. And that's why the, the astral forms are in some ways very simple in the film. Um, you know, they, they look a lot like ghosts, but they're very, very simple. We have a little bit of effects, a little bit of distortion and dif refraction and stuff like that. We figured out that the astral forms had to be interesting in the way they moved and they kind of floated through the rooms and their, their interaction with the walls and all that stuff. But in terms of their look, uh, we want it to be very simple and subtle because we wanted to keep and protect that moment, that five minutes long sequence where they just talk and we didn't want to take over. Um, so that was, that was for us a, a full arc of going through very complex effects that were just too crazy and, and, and going back to something that was more simple but protected the story. Yeah, I mean, it was always going to be hard work, wasn't it? Because it's not as if you're creating seamless effects. You're, you know, it's incredibly obvious and it has to be that, yeah. they're, that yeah. they're not there. They're ghosts, yeah, that you see through them and they can float through things. And I mean, and, and they were very, you know, all the astral fight was actually really difficult because, you know, we were obviously dealing with digi doubles and takeovers and, and uh, you know, having shot all these plates and previewed everything and did some very complex tech viz and having all these different characters moving through the rooms and going from elements that we had shot on green screen to to uh, body replacement, to full full body replacement, face facial uh, motion capture, all that stuff, all the tools that we use throughout the sequence. That was technically very challenging, um, but but the look of the astral form in itself is actually very simple. Uh, but yeah, that I was quite, the way to take that sequence. I quite like asking people at this point in an interview, you know, if you're doing it again or you had your time over, what would yeah. you do differently? But the thing is, you've just like, you've done Captain America, you've done Thor, Guardians, Strange. I believe you're going on to Ant-Man, uh, Wasp, or, you know, the, the sequel. Um, so you've, is the process now very much the same for you? Obviously the challenges are different per film uh, or is the sort of the way that you're making these films still an evolving beast? Uh, you know, there's different things, you know. Uh, obviously all all the films have their own challenges. Um, you know, Guardians had a very animation-based challenge. Um, this one was more on a creative R&D, um, you know, visual R&D challenge. Uh, and we also had some very strong technical challenges with you know, very detailed digi-doubles and things like that. Um, I, I would say, you know, the tools are the same. The, the big issue is, um, is really how we use them and how we tell the story with them. Um, so every time, every movie has a bit of a challenge in itself, but it's, uh, the tools are, I mean, right, you can do a lot of things. I mean, I would say 10 years ago, there was things that we couldn't touch, but nowadays you can pretty much do everything you want, but you shouldn't do everything you can. It's just about finding the right balance and also using the tools for the storytelling. Um, so that, to me, that's the approach. And now in terms of the, the, the pipeline and how we work at, at Marvel and how we approach things, I mean, every film has its own specificities and we always try to serve the, the vision of the director as much as we can and also working with the studio to try and, and tie things together with everybody else. I mean, that's the nice thing at Marvel is that we, we all the guys in visual effects, we all know each other's. 
all the supervisors we know each other we know all the producers and it's like a, it's like a creative campus which we share everything we know uh you know the guys who are doing other films you know like the guys who are doing gardens too came to see me to talk about rocket and Groot. i talked to them about other things that we had to do in our films it's always a collaboration so i think that group of people is a very tight group of people and we we work together and try to share techniques and ideas and new ideas and and new things. It's a it's a very nice uh, working environment actually. Um, but but you know we try every time to push the envelope and and come up with new ideas. But I think it's more on the ideas level rather than the technology level. Uh, at least I'm trying to approach it this way. Um, when I look at a film, I look at it from a from a storytelling point of view more than a technical point of view. Techniques comes afterwards. Uh, it will come and we'll find ways. We we'll always find ways to do things. But it's. Uh, it's defining what we need to, to achieve for the story that is the most important thing for me. Yeah, well, clearly it's working. As, as I started this discussion, uh, Magical Mystic Control would have been, you know, a bit dull had you been approaching it from let's show off shots that they can't work out how we did them. Uh, mm-hmm. in, in doing the opposite, which is telling the story, you actually did provide me with some shots that I was going, yeah, man, how did they do that? But, um, right. But that's how it should be. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. Really appreciate it. Oh, no worries. My pleasure. Well, thanks to Mike and to Steph. I think that was a really nice discussion about the film and a lot of other issues involved in visual effects making these days. So that'll do it for this FX podcast. I'm Jeff Huser for my partners, Mike Seymour and John Montgomery. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next FX podcast. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.